Hey everyone, and welcome back to Creative Consumption. I'm Daniel Schwartzberg, host of the show. Really, welcome back. It has been a while, mostly because this year has just been very busy for a variety of reasons. But I'm very excited to be bringing the podcast back for a new series of interviews that will hopefully be released through the summer. And I'm even more excited to be starting this new series of interviews with a conversation with a friend and colleague, Dr. Brandon Gaucher. So Brandon's uh, CV, his resume is extremely impressive. So I'm just going to run down a few credits right here at the beginning. Brandon got his PhD in modern history at Fordham University in 2016, and he continues to teach at Fordham as an adjunct professor of history. Brandon is also the director of global education at the Dairyfield School, where he also teaches history. And on top of all that, Brandon is a music lover. You're, you're going to hear more about that through the interview. He is a gardener, and he is just one of the most uh, renaissance man-like figures I have really run into. It's pretty incredible how far-reaching his interests go. And now published author can be added in to all of those earlier descriptors because Before Evil, Brandon's first book, was released just a month ago on April 26th and is available to order right now by visiting beforeevil.com. And if you go there, you can also hear Brandon speak about the book with other media outlets and read more details about Brandon's background and biography. So in his book, Before Evil, Brandon examines the early lives of six heinous dictators, and he asks the question, should we humanize the world's most inhumane leaders? And it's, a, it's an extremely difficult question, and you're going to hear Brandon talk about how he approached writing such a fraught topic and how he conducted his really extensive historical research and writing process. And on top of all that, Brandon also spoke about the way that he finds a state of flow in all kinds of the creation he does and how that flow feeds into his creation as a historian and as a historiographer and a teacher. And that's the part of the conversation that really connected to that recurring theme I've noticed in interviews about that continuum that most creators see between that main creative pursuit of theirs and their other pursuits and that kind of impact that those ancillary pursuits have on the central passion and creation. Brandon also recommended a bunch of artists and creators that inspire him, so be sure to listen for those at the end of the interview. A brief production note, some audio artifacts unfortunately did make it into the recording of the interview, and while I did my best to mitigate them after the fact through editing, apologies if the audio quality is occasionally distracting. I'm very grateful to Brandon for his time and sharing all his thoughts, so with that, here's my interview with Brandon Gaucher. Brandon, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Daniel. And thank you for that uh, that really kind introduction. Yeah, I'm del delighted to talk with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. So one of the things that I love to start these conversations with is getting an idea of the perspective through which you see yourself, but also how when you meet other people, kind of the way you lead to others. And so the question I love to start with is when you meet somebody for the first time, what title or titles do you lead with and how do you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I just introduce myself as Brandon, uh, and, you know, and it depends on the context. If it is within an educational context of younger people, I'd introduce myself as Dr. Gauthier, but outside of a, a classroom environment at the high school or college level, yeah, people can just call me Brandon. That's totally fine. Do you like to mention the things you do or do you kind of like to just say this is who i am and if they ask then you'll go into that 
Sometimes I can become frustrated by conversations that I think we engage in because we don't really know someone and we're kind of afraid to ask maybe deep or more meaningful questions because we want to be respectful of someone's space, right? But I, I do like when meeting someone for the first time, if the context is appropriate, to ask a three-parter, and this is normally off-putting, right? They also have a three-part question for you and you have to be deadpan as you say it. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your fears? So some people will say uh, that's kind of an odd question to ask. And some people will make a joke out of it. Some people will laugh and be like, yeah, I'm not answering that. And that's okay, right? But what happens sometimes frequently is people will engage it seriously. And so very quickly, I'm really getting to know someone now. You know, someone speaks about hopes, short-term aspirations, dreams, long-term aspirations. And then if someone speaks about fears in an authentic way, now you're having a real conversation. And, you know, and obviously I do my best to reply if they want me to, to, to reply on those questions. Why? Uh, you're really bonding with someone all of a sudden, really connecting with someone. I'd love to think that day-to-day, -day, the interactions we have with people, not only about being nice and kind as we should be, but to really try to get to know someone. I, I tell students a lot, uh, we should ask how people are, that that really matters, and we should listen and we should care. Uh, and it's not just about asking some people will ask you how you're doing, right? Sometimes we have things we want to share and that's okay but to really make an earnest effort to care about how people are doing because sometimes people aren't doing well. And I think it's okay, as I encourage students to say, when you're not having the best day, we don't get to be happy all the time. And that's normal. That's part of the human condition. And when someone's having a tough day and they say, you know, uh, I'm, I'm actually having a bad day, then to be able to say, what can I do to make your day better, right? Uh, and I mean that. Where do you think you got those questions? Were they questions that somebody asked to you once? Or is these are these questions that you decided over time, these are actually the things I care about and these are the things I want to know? Well, I don't know. Maybe hope, dreams, and fears start as a joke in college, right? It's like totally like over the top questions that you could yeah. just, I, I like to do it deadpan and say it really seriously, yeah. which is a little intense. Uh, but I, I maybe it started as a joke, but now I'm kind of serious about it. But obviously, you know, you have to be cool. If someone's not interested in that conversation, kind of laughs. Like, you know, but seriously, what are you going to let it go? Uh, so I, I don't really know where that came from. But I, I do know that my people, my the, the Gaucher clan happens to be a loquacious and gregarious clan. And so, you know, I think about family members and, you know, the, the good example set by loved ones. So take a genuine interest in people. You never know how someone's actually doing. And it could be a kind word that could really make a difference um, for someone. And, and we should care about that just because I've had moments where I've had a really bad day and I'm kind of in a bad place and there's a moment of kindness and it's really meaningful to me. And I really appreciate that. You're a teacher. You are now an author. And again, congratulations about that. And in addition to that, I, I remember reading and talking, I think, to you about music. You are a gardener. You and I have actually had wonderful conversations about gardening. What made you want to write this book? And how would you describe the thesis of this book? Well, to speak to what you were saying first before I you know, kind of get into the book, I think there's a lot of things to be joyful about. Uh, you know, my, my profession is I am a historian and under that umbrella, I would put educator and I would put writer. Uh, and uh, uh, that stems in part from, I, I like school so much, I decided to never leave it. I decided that I would keep going to school till they wouldn't let me go to school anymore, which resulted in the PhD. And then they let me teach college classes and then I get to teach high school classes. And so a historian is my profession. You know, that's what I do. I teach and I write. Uh, and that, and that, that's how that relates to before evil. We'll talk about that. Uh, but there's so much to be joyful about. There's so many cool things uh, to be doing. And so what that means for me, 
is that I have always been super passionate about music. Before Yable has a playlist of ambient and orchestral soundtracks that can be listened to while reading it. Uh, I played in a band in high school and college. I played lead guitar. I played the Marshall Half Stack. We played very loud. We played Talking Head and Led Zeppelin covers. If there were complaints about the volume, we apologized that it was going to get louder as the show went on. Uh, and that was super joyful, right? I, I really, really enjoyed that. And in addition to that, uh, you know, gardening and fermenting, it adds a lot of meaning to my life. I mean, it makes me think, and we'll get back to the four evil here in a moment. Well, I was just hearing, and I forget the author's name, but it was a podcast. And he spoke about kind of chosen suffering. We're almost like benevolent suffering. And he said, what really provides deep meaning in life are these things that we do that aren't necessarily that fun when we're doing them. Like, why do people go rock climbing? Like, there's a lot of reasons people go rock climbing, but like, why do we go run a marathon? That's really hard. Is that not suffering at some point? Like, why did I lock myself in a room for three and a half years by myself, drinking tea, writing and researching? And uh, the, the work has been immense. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of the work that I've spent a really, really, really long time working and writing. And it's hard. But so this uh, author spoke about this notion of benevolent suffering or chosen suffering were the words. And what he said was that this is what provides meaning in life. Uh, there's unchosen suffering, which is just traumatic and we don't want to have happen. But what we also do is we embrace these activities, which are really challenging. Uh, but what they do is they offer meaning through struggle. And it's, it is a, a way of spending your time that provides uh, fulfillment. It is part of the journey of, I'm going to do something really hard. It's going to take a lot of years, but I'm going to get there. And that can look like so many different things. The author's name was Paul Bloom. Uh, the title of the podcast was The Right Kind of Suffering. And that really resonated with me about why do we do these things? So, you know, at home right now, I have a large number of seedlings going. And it's a lot of work. It, like It's going to, from like one tray of seeds, I'm going to end up with a huge bounty, a huge garden. And I'm going to spend so much time outside digging and sweating and working hard. And I need to do it. Um, and I know that one of my favorite moments of the summer will be when I come to the backyard and it's just like overgrown. It's wild. It's like a, a garden with like tomatoes hanging everywhere. I got Carolina Reaper, spicy peppers. And um, I spend time just going outside in the summer and just like looking in awe. Uh, not like what I've achieved, but like, like nature, the beauty of it. And that the human condition can intersect with that. So when we talk about having a lot of doctrines, right? From music to, to, to art to gardening. I like to ferment, make mean, barrel-aged kombucha. It takes a lot of time and it's a lot of hard work. I derive a lot of fulfillment, a lot more fulfillment than I think than I get just sometimes laying on the couch watching YouTube. But, you know, that rules too. There's a day for that. <laughs> In general, I love seeing people light up about the things they're passionate about. And I, it's clear that your book, the fact that you wrote it, is you're passionate about this topic as well. But I would just love to know just where, why gardening? Like, why all those other passions as well? I mean, music was clearly big for you. Was there somebody early on in your life who loved music? Was it just something you found? Well, to speak to like why gardening and then music, sure. I think I am, as a person, deeply wedded to, you know, the long way to the top. Uh, the, the journey that I think I need to be like a part of. And that journey for me, is long-term giving or struggling for a larger end. The plan in which we do 0.01% every day for three, four, five, 10, 20 years. You know, I look at my job 
um, teaching you know, at the Dairy Field School is I want to contribute to a community bigger than me. I want to I want to be a part of this mission in which I am playing my small role in trying to make something better. And so I, I need that as a human being. I need to be a part of a, 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 a struggle, if you will. I say struggle in the sense that work is sometimes work, right? It's not always easy. You have to you have to work hard. After this book is done, I will start another. It's been really hard, but this is what I need to do. I need the 0.01% every day because that's how I derive a lot of happiness. The moments I'll take this summer off. I won't do I won't do any scholarship or writing for a few months, but then inevitably I will start to get antsy. I'll start to kind of feel disquiet. Uh, there's too much time. I need to be pouring my energy into something, right? And so I like I love gardening because this is like this in a microcosm. We're gonna I love the idea of doing things from scratch. We're gonna start with like five packets of seeds. And from this teeny little beginning, we will realize this great harvest. Um, the notion of our agency, of what we do and don't do, that it can have a real impact. And gardening is the most beautiful example of that. You immediately see, yeah, don't immediately see it. The joke is that gardeners have to be the most patient people in the world. I think you plant seeds in March and April, and like, you know, I'm not gonna get real peppers like real Carolina reapers, like late August, right? I'll get some Tabasco peppers, uh, some other peppers by like mid and late July. But even then you're talking like four to five months, but I love the journey of beginning with something small. And then through your own agency and hard work, you, you realize it and you see it and you feel this sense of profound happiness of, of, of helping to shape and bring that to be. There's also things outside your control, you know? You can't, you can't control the fact that it's going to rain straight for a month and, and, and your tomato plants are going to get blight and it's going to be a real sad thing. And I have these pesky squirrels that keep digging up my seedlings and they chewed up all my sunflowers last year, but it's a microcosm of life in a sense. Your agency can have a real impact, but there are limits to what you can control and you have to be cool with that. You have to be, you have to be okay with that. And now we're seeing passion intersect with profession. So I am a historian and before evil is about the early lives of some of the worst people who ever lived. It is about the formative years of Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Mussolini, uh, and Kim Il-sung, and Vladimir Lenin. It is an effort to look at the humanity of inhumanity, to try to engage with a more nuanced story about how human beings can go down some really horrific roads in which they begin to commit acts of evil, evil being defined as you know, acts with a distinct lack of empathy. We don't feel for other suffering. Uh, it's a story of ideological radicalism, but it is first and foremost a story of human beings. Uh, the framing of Before Evil, my book, is how is it that monsters, demons, you know, what we want to see when we think about Hitler or Mao, the monsters aren't real. There are human beings that behave monstrously, but actual gargoyles, they, they don't exist. They're not real. Human beings are real, and it's human beings who commit crimes against humanity. That keeps me up at night. Uh, I struggle to live with, live with that and reconcile it because it, the common tendency is to want to only see monsters in the making, to believe that there's this heinous evil that is inexplicable. We can never understand it. There's some things maybe we'll never get to the bottom of, but the historian's task is for a man or woman to grapple with what has happened with the conviction that things are explicable. And the story of Before Evil is looking at the early lives of these men and challenging the notion that it is only trauma that creates people who behave in an evil way. Stalin and Hitler have quite abusive fathers, but they have wonderful mothers and they have a lot of advantages in life. 
the story of ideas, I think, is what their ability to fall in love with ideas, to become zealots, ideological radicals. That's the defining story of their path towards evil. The writing of that began like a seed. I went on a walk, talked on the phone with a dear friend, and um, came home and just felt I hadn't done any real scholarship writing for over a year after I finished my PhD and my dissertation. Took a year off, and I just I had to do it. And I sat down and immediately wrote a chapter, and I felt it in, in the pit of my stomach. I hope readers will, will feel it when they read the book. Not just dry intellectual facts, but uh, embracing what Mary Wollstonecraft, the Enlightenment, said, which is, you know, when we, when we feel very deeply, we can think profoundly. That emotion is not something that we should be um, cheap at arm's length in every context, right? That, that feeling, this is to be alive. This is to think deeply, and it's really meaningful. So I came home and started writing, and that was July 2018. And then I started the long road, Daniel, the long, long, long journey. And we are now talking at the end of that particular journey. I mean, there's a lot there that I would love to dig into. First off, just starting with what you began with about that core question. And I know that this is, I believe, the lead line on your website that kind of should we humanize the world's most inhumane leaders. And I can imagine trying to untangle this, like how to dig into this topic. It must have been a challenge just because... It's a fraught topic, and I want to make it clear, and your writing does make this clear, and you just did, but that these men are evil, right? You don't you don't ever dispute that fact. How did you approach finding that balance? How did you reckon with that in your head, just starting right off and knowing, in some ways, this could be a very perilous topic to write about because the perception of it might seem not an endorsement, but at least that even to mention these names, even to talk about them is something that in and of itself is an endorsement. So how did you reckon with that? Was that a, something you were worried about? I think that's the reason to do it. I, I think that the historian, that he or she has to engage with the big ideas that are deeply meaningful. And as I think we get into trying to conceptualize what are the big ideas in life, uh, how do we make sense of something you know, like evil, that that is a perilous task in and of itself, right? Because you're going to have people who disagree. Uh, you're going to have individuals who challenge what you're doing and say, is this the right thing to be saying? Which is, by the way, the very nature of a of, of, of free discourse. It is appropriate. So you have to engage with the understanding of you know, everything we're doing within the social sciences, right? It's about that dialogue. And I don't have the market, cor market cornered on absolute truth. I actually think that's the road to tyranny. <laughs> I actually think that's the road to totalitarianism, that this is what it is, and you must accept it. So I, I frame it from the very beginning, right, uh, through a sense of humility, uh, that this is something that people are going to challenge. There's three very clear caveats in the book that try to anticipate what I think are appropriate critiques of what follows. And, and, and the first is, you know, well, one, that these individuals, nothing we do to humanize them. Nothing we do to try to understand how they became who they became can ever diminish the evil of their crimes. Uh, it, it actually makes them more guilty <laughs> because it speaks to not monsters who were born as Jeff, Jeffrey Dahmer-esque creatures who are, you know, hurting animals as kids and are, and are destined to do these horrific things. Um, it speaks to earnest students who were really interested in books and passionate uh, in, in most respects about school and about ideas. Adolf Hitler hated school, but there's a lot of reasons for that, but he was really obsessed with books uh, as a teenager and, and was often surrounded by them. We, we don't see the caricatures that we would expect to be there. And so why are we engaging in that conversation? Because we care about what they did, because we care about the suffering of people who, who experienced 
misery beyond our comprehension because of what they ordered from warm, well-lit offices sitting at desks, right? And so nothing we do to try to understand their humanity diminishes their guilt. Their guilt's absolute. It actually heightens their guilt because it speaks to individuals who aren't merely making decisions because they have psychopathological tendencies. Some people will say, really, aren't they doing this because, you know, they're for lack of better words, they have a mental health issue. And there's part that's part of the puzzle, right? Uh, but what I see in the story of their lives are individuals who view themselves as quite rational, who embrace certain ideas, believing what they're doing is completely right. Um, and that makes them more guilty because they choose to do what they do. It's not predetermined by a psychopathological condition or by any one moment of trauma. Two, as, as we think about their lives, we can never definitively explain them. We embrace the task that history is explicable and we work towards that aspirationally. Uh, but we're not coming out of this with like a math problem, which is another thing people want to see. What are the lessons of history? And there are some lessons, but we want to see that like, okay, so two plus two equals four. If you have these circumstances and these characteristics, someone will become megalomaniacal mass murder. But that's not how history works. How many individuals had far, far, far more traumatic experiences than just of Stalin at the hands of his abusive father and then grew up to be decent, empathetic people, right? We were able to overcome that. How many people have a given mental health condition who live wonderful lives, right? Who aren't predestined to, to evil. And, and the notion of that is super reductive and problematic. So whenever we look at who they are as children, it's not to say that these are the, the, the definitive way we understand how monsters, so to speak, quote unquote, the monstrous better said come to be. Um, it's the story of how human beings who are often quite relatable human beings in which we might see many parallels of ourselves in them, which is, again, now we're getting into controversial territory. He wants to say what they have in common with Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler. The thing is, we do have some things in common. First and foremost, that we're homo sapiens. Three, it's not psychohistory. I, I can't uh, bring them back from the dead, um, bring in a trained psychiatrist and spend hours engaging them in a psychological-based discussion to try to diagnose them and then say, well, it's this narcissism that caused these crimes against, crimes against humanity. That matters. It's part of the puzzle. There are historians and scholars that have focused on their psychopathological traits through secondhand materials. But even that's problematic, as I was just touching on. Actually, I read a really interesting book throughout the course of, of uh, you know working on this. It was about how uh, psychopathological traits are shared by a lot of decent, hardworking people in society. Neurosurgeons actually tend to have these psychopathological traits. Why? Because they got to operate on someone's brain with a scalpel. You need someone who can keep inordinately calm, who in an extreme high stress situation is not overwhelmed. That is a special person. And actually high powered CEOs often reflect psychopathological traits. So nothing we do diminishes their evil to had a, we can't definitively come away with the formula about how evil comes to be. Mental health and psychology is really important, but that's not the definitive way to understand the origins of evil. I, I take issue with that. This is a book full of incredibly deep ideas. Obviously, everything you just said makes that very clear. In addition to it being about six men who ultimately committed atrocities. Through the writing of this book, in which you're having to reckon with and write about these incredibly complex ideas to untangle them, to explain your thought process and your reasoning. How would you transition from, let's say, writing this book into the other elements of your life, into something not related to the creation that you're going through in this process of writing? Did you develop any sort of strategies to pull yourself out of this world of writing and this world of dealing with these complex ideas that you found let you 
leave that behind? It's really hard. I think of a clogged sink, right? In the sense that I want to put all this information into it, but yet I can only consume so much information. So sometimes I think about reading as, you know, I want to read as much as I can. And I listen to a lot of books as well, but uh, I have a finite processing capacity. You know, I'm, <laughs> and so I think about that, that clogged sink. There's water going through, but it takes a long time to drain, but I keep pouring water into the sink. I keep putting it in, right? And so what that means is I'm reading all the time only about this subject. Because if you want to create scholarship, you need to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you start talking about historiography, meaning the history of the history, think about all the Adolf Hitler biographies out there, you have the intellectual obligation to engage as much of that as you can. And you have to be able to conceptualize about what is the historiography of Hitler? How have views changed? Who are the major people? And so you start talking about six dictators, uh, the historiography is immense. That hasn't stopped. I'm still reading tonight. I'm still sitting down, you know, with a volume that I know the arguments. I read parts of it, but I'm still going. Uh, and so, once the process project comes to an end, there's still always more to read. But it, it will be uh, interesting to begin to turn my gaze into another topic. So, to answer your question, it is all-consuming in a sense, and my brain, you know, it it, it, it runs hot. You know, uh, I can't stop thinking about it. Shorter answer to your question. I go dig in the dirt. Nothing like a good garden. Yeah, I mean, like the flow state. I'm writing an article right now that's about music and books. Uh, and it talks a lot about the notion of, again, the, the flow, the currents of time that transcend reality in which you can feel something larger than yourself. And the hamster wheel comes to a stop in your mind and you're just like doing something, right? I mean, it's in the garden digging. And all of a sudden, all I'm doing is focusing on the task at hand. And then time becomes irrelevant. And by the way, writing the book paradoxically enough, based on what I just said, is also this process. When you're actually writing, it's not so much that you're not still thinking, but the intensity of your focus, just on what words you will choose, it sucks you into the flow. And that is hard work. And uh, that, that is itself an element of, of this flow state. So yeah, there's a paradox there. In one sense, you're thinking constantly uh, about these big ideas. In another sense, when you're trying to actually put it on paper, it becomes something akin to gardening. It becomes something akin to jogging a long distance. Time is meaningless. Hours can go by in what feels like 30 minutes. You can put fatigue aside. So there is this tension between the mind racing versus doing. And, and the doing is liberating at times from that thinking, which I know makes no sense to listeners. I just described writing the book as being liberating from thinking about the book. I don't know. Make of that what you will. Especially because you use that word all, like all-consuming. But then like you also, like you said, you take this time to go into a flow state in the garden and that you love music. You are still writing about other things. This topic of multitasking, which I know can be a, a, a tricky topic because there are those who I think believe that multitasking can't exist, that it is that, that it's a term that is just a misnomer for trying to divide your attention unsuccessfully. I think you mentioned this at the beginning, and if you didn't, I'll, I'll mention it here again, that there is a playlist of songs that you encourage people to, to listen along to, to explore that accompanies your book. So is that something where you're able to kind of consume the music while you do something like writing and while you do something like your creation process and you're able to both get that enjoyment out of the consumption of the music while simultaneously creating? Is that like a, a multitasking flow that works for you well? The whole book was written always with music, ambient music going. Now, some listeners would say, you know, reading and listening is problematic, that it's distracting. 
that's that makes sense, right? Listening to music with lyrics is uh, is I can't do, but reading, uh, excuse me, reading or writing with music is essential for me. I take ambient meditative music that I might stare off into the distance and try to go deep into, or want to lay down and close my eyes and just try to clear my mind, find that meditative flow. It intersects with the process of writing itself, and I find that it deeply enriches the experience of engaging with words. So yeah, the music absolutely for me um, has been a fundamental part of how I wrote the book. Uh, I would recommend that listeners uh, go listen to Johnny Greenwood's The Phantom Thread and then read the passage about Lennon's older brother dying. And yeah, you'll get it. You'll feel it. Um, and now maybe that's presumptuous, right? Maybe someone listens and they're like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, and that makes sense to me, right? You know, you want to think that everyone's going to hear something and feel the certain way. The beauty is people will reformulate the meaning of sound and text in, in their own mind in the new way. Creation, driving creation in an endless evolving series of, uh, of developments that's never worked out the exact way we expect it to. So the intersection of music with the text itself is to try to set the listener up if they're willing to go down that journey to maybe not only hope, hopefully feel some sensation of creativity that I felt listening to that music, but far more fortuitously to have their own moments when they're thinking about something or maybe just in the flow of reading where the music is heightening their flow state, is heightening their engagement with the text. Do you think that that is an essential part to creation that you take the time to remove yourself from whatever the thing is that you're creating, like in your case, maybe you're writing, and that you engage with those things that are not directly the same, but which have such significant creative, inspirational abilities. I feel awe at the notion of translations of artistic creation, right? So, okay, I'm a historian, and historians are not really supposed to like, not feel like, like this is not like uh, PhD classes at a university. They're like, okay, so our goal as historians, right, is to make people feel so they'll think more deeply. Uh, that's not really what historians do. Historians are normally really focused on kind of this cold blooded analysis and, 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 and very careful research that can be really dry. I have I've done that thought process in my dissertation, right, throughout my doctoral program, and I have immense respect for scholarship. I have embraced um, uh, an intellectual path that I find is deeply enriched by an effort to reach a larger audience, and that I think becomes more accessible by considering how it relates to other forms of art. There is a continuing relevance, unfortunately, to the topic of the book, that these are not the only six terrible despots and terrible people who have lived and obviously current events the tragedy of the war in ukraine i think does draw at least for me uh, there was something that was on my mind when i was reading through your book i can imagine other people have asked you about this but i am i was curious if you'd be willing to talk about it how have you been processing and dealing with with what is happening in ukraine and with the actions of a man who's currently living like vladimir putin who is not he has not yet lived his full life for those for this sort of a book to be written about him, how are you reacting to something like that? We see strong parallels with the lives of the other men that we've been talking about, uh, which is, A, Vladimir Putin's committing crimes against humanity, war crimes in Ukraine. The story of Vladimir Putin's life. You know, if you read something like Masha Gessen's The Man Without a Face, the very best uh, writers who have engaged who Vladimir Putin is, that's not what you would expect. 
you would expect that was this someone that was raised in a terrible home and was abused by his parents and how could he believe his own truths he believes what he's doing is right and i think that is true i really do i think vladimir putin is utterly convinced he's doing what he has to do for the russian federation and so on and he's committing terrible crimes believing he is right strong echo of what these men's lives these dictators lenin hitler stalin mao mussolini kim il-sung were like his parents loved and cared about him and wanted them to be successful in life he is a young person falls in love with the stories of heroism we've been talking about, heroes and villains. The story of Vladimir Putin is about delusions of heroism, about true belief, not about a bad childhood. Although again, the dictators we talked about, there are instances of really horrible things that happened to the young, and that's part of the story. But I don't think that's the defining part of the story for Vladimir Putin. The defining part of the story was having good parents, having opportunities, and having the opportunity to do something bigger with his life and believing that he could and then seeing it happen, and then becoming the president of Russia, and then believing that what he is doing, and knowing it is having a profound impact on so many people, that is a, that, that for him has turned into a really dark and ugly road. That road started as a young person. The road to crime against humanity in Ukraine don't start with someone who wants to make people suffer. It starts with someone who believes that, yes, people are going to suffer, but it's for a larger end. I appreciate you engaging with that. Thanks. And again, I'm sure that that's not the first time you've been asked about that. So thank you. You mentioned this summer, you might even give yourself a little time away from writing. And so yeah, what are you planning to do to rejuvenate yourself? Are you feeling more creatively energized after this book? Or are there things that you want to do to let yourself step away from it? Or is it a mix of the both? Is it that continuum, just like we keep talking about? I feel energized by this conversation. I feel energized by it all. I mean, this is a moment where I'll collapse with exhaustion, you know, and sleep very deeply. I find it very energizing. I find the hunt a necessity for me. What is the hunt? It is the long journey in which you're doing something that you think is meaningful and requires sustained effort and gives rise to these flow states where, you know, I'm not worrying about some of the existential questions that might keep me up at night. Sometimes I'm totally absorbed in this moment. And so, yeah, this summer I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm going to read a lot of books, uh, which are not about these dictators. I'm going to try to sit as much as I can by a pool and I'm going to listen to a lot of music. I'm going to take really long walks with my dogs, but note the paradox. One flow state is replaced by another. I, I, when I'm sitting with a book for a long period of time and listening to music on for large, you know, for, for large durations of time, when I'm going on these long, long walks, yeah, my mind races. That's true. I think about anything and everything. But the best moments, right? Best moments, right? When I, I'm in that flow, I'm alive and I'm feeling, uh, and it is maybe that that chosen misery of going on a ten mile walk. Yeah, I look forward to that. But again, by the way, the translation of it will carry back over to what I, whatever I do next. The, the novels I have read, um, the authors who have really inspired me are not historians. There's only one. Simon Sebag Montefiore is a great historian who writes quite lyrically and quite beautifully, and I, and he's been a big inspiration. Uh, but there are other authors right, uh, that I have found really moving and inspiring for me. There's a great book called Welfare that's by a Canadian author named Steve Anwell. And he wrote a blurb for my book, super nice guy. His book is not history. It's a novel about a kid who drops out of high school uh, and who's having a tough time. And, uh, and it's quite beautiful. I wrote him. I said, your writing inspired me. I, I wanted to take what you do in IndyLib. And I'm not going to mimic it within history, but I want to bring that degree of feeling to what I do. One thing I like to wrap up with when it comes to these conversations, 
really related to what you were just saying is, are there particular things right now that you've been reading, engaging with, watching those YouTube videos when you sit and couch and watch YouTube videos? Are there things you just want to mention and recommend that people, other people can enjoy, other other content that people can engage with and then maybe, like you said, bring into their creativity? Yeah, well, th th there's a number of things. Like I said, I went down this really like indie lit rabbit hole. There is this like 800 page book by Megan Boyle called Live Blog and it is by a writer. She spends a year and says everything she thinks. And it's this book called Live Blog, really, really deep. Uh, really, I, I read part of it over uh, the holiday break when I needed a break from you know the type of reading we've been talking about and writing we've talking about. And so, yeah, I think there's a flow state to be found there. I'm really deep to go into what Megan was. So I say Megan as if like we're friends. I don't know Megan. I have great respect I'm sure for she's great. Oil, I'm right? sure she's fantastic. That's how I should be referred to her because uh, she is a very serious writer. And, and, and I've um, entranced by this book. And I think it's another flow state journey, right? Uh, also, I spend inordinate amounts of time watching when I'm not working. By inordinate amounts of time, we're talking like 6 to 7.30 on a Friday night. I'm watching a lot of live music performances. There's an artist named Caroline Rose. So I would suggest that listeners check out. Caroline Rose is spectacular. I've been watching a concert by her over and over and over. It's just really good. It's just so, uh, she, she's a wonderful artist. Also, I, I'm into the science ch channel you might have heard of. It's called Niles Red. This guy rules, okay? This guy, Niles Red, is a chemist. He's probably in his 20s. He's a young guy. And all he does is like undertake these really long, the long journey, the long flow state journey. He's like, okay, in this corner, we have cotton balls. I'm going to turn cotton balls into cotton candy through chemistry. And it's like, you know, it's like 48 chemical processes, right? Like it takes forever. And he will break down the chemical structure of the cotton balls and do an endless series of chemical processes will end up with like cotton candy. Why am I interested in that? I don't know, Daniel. Like my level of chemistry, not deep, but I watched this guy for hours at a time. I think it's because I'm enraptured by the process of the long journey the translations from one equation to another, and I see a certain beauty in it. It's really mesmerizing. Check out Niles Red. I swear to you. Anyone who starts to watch, and by the way, this is a generalization. Not any, not everyone will enjoy it. So people are like, I'm not into this. But some of you might find it meaningful in terms of what I'm saying. Niles Red on YouTube. I hope that listeners will, if they read the book, will look at the footnote where I list out the artists that really influenced me and how people will buy their music. Jonas Reinhard, Steve Haas Child, Artists like that, I hope that we will support uh, and they deserve to be supported and they're really good. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to say that. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of those. Before we go here, I, I want to emphasize very quickly, in terms of creation, one thing that I found inspiring, I was talking about, you know, trying to take different genres, you know, get beyond artistic boundaries. I mentioned Brian Eno. Uh, there's something really cool that Brian Eno does when he's in the studio, which I think is really interesting that you can do in your writing, uh, you can do it in teaching, you can do it in a lot of different ways. Uh, he has a series of note cards, which are meant to drive creation. So essentially, like if they're creating, you know, they feel in a rut in the studio, they'll say, okay, pull out the cards. I've done this as a teacher. Uh, and so one of the cards would say, you know, what would be the most ridiculous thing you could do right now in terms of the music? Another one would be like, is it done? Um, another one would be, I'm going to throw out really, really random point here. Cause that's what some of the cards include. What would Andy Warhol say? So it includes all of these different uh, efforts to kickstart. 
the artistic creation, uh, the, the, the thinking of your mind, through including these kind of random scenarios. If listeners are interested, I, I can email to you an excerpt from a biography of Barney Noe where he talks about these cards and like exactly what that consists of. That's a great idea. I would love to get that. And I'm, I hope that those who are listening would appreciate it too. I'm sure they would. So definitely, yeah, send that over. I know you said that you usually like this as an intro, but since you brought it up, I'm going to use it more as an outro and I will, I'm going to try my best to do a very straight face. But Brandon, come on. What are your hopes, dreams, and fears? Oh, wow. Yeah. I I did this to myself, didn't I? I did this to myself. Um, I I think it's important to engage authentically as much as we can with those questions. My hopes, I would like to be professionally successful to me that translates to I get the opportunity to continue to create. I have the, the foundation of where I continue to get to teach at a wonderful place like Dairyfield. I get to continue to teach for Fordham University, but also I continue to have the space of being in a classroom for two hours in the afternoon to kind of engage what is an intellectual and artistic process that I think is really meaningful and adds a lot of meaning to my life. But I also think um, it's something that is a uh, important that I want to say, right? And others might find it important or not. Others might relate to it or not. Some will like it, some will hate it, but it's something I need to do. Uh, that, 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 that's my hope. Uh, my dream is for my daughters to have wonderful lives, for them to be able to pursue and do whatever it is they want to do in life uh, and, and define what form of artistic creation and intellectual creation is going to bring profound meaning to their lives. And, you know, and maybe that will be not... Uh, just about themselves, right? But again, about something larger, share all of the universe around us. What can they do in their own small way to try to make life better? Uh, but that's rooted in empathy. What can we try to do that uh, brings more focus on the need to stand up for everyone's human dignity, uh, no matter who they are? That's my dream for them, that, that, that that's something they will be able to contribute to and in the process find great fulfillment and happiness. Fears are diverse. <laughs> wide ranging in one sense i'd love to be like vladimir Zelensky, you know and 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 not fear anything when i look at ukraine right now i see such a profound admiration for the human spirit you know to be able to stand up to evil and to not be afraid well i'm afraid of things right And, and i and i think that's uh i think that's real for me i i i want the best for my loved ones very deeply and i fear uh you know what is not best for my loved ones i fear the notion of early demise, right? I love being alive. There's so many cool things to do. There's so many interesting people to speak to. I am not afraid to die. I'm afraid of dying early. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid of um, losing the ability to relate and connect and engage with others based on my inability to definitively control my mind as I get older, right? You know, those things happen. And I, I think what is really beautiful about life is not anything I, I do. It's about being able to appreciate what you do and maybe when we can relate on what we both do. And so, you know, I'm, I'm afraid, not of dying, but of an early demise. And I'm afraid of, you know, any situation which I could lose the faculties of my brain. And this is in addition to a fear of, uh, you know, what can happen uh, to those we truly love and, and those that we would fight and die for, you know? That's an honest answer, Daniel. I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Thank you for this whole conversation, Brandon. And just so I can make sure I let everyone know one more time, the book Before Evil is kind of be coming out on April 26th. You can pre-order it currently. I think hopefully by the time this comes out, it will be live ordering on that date itself. But you can go to beforeevil.com. If you'd like to follow Brandon when he shares things and updates on Twitter, you can follow him at B. 
K Gaucher. Um, all these links will also be in the show notes. People can find them there as well, uh, as well as the links to everything, all the stuff you recommended, all those cool things. Like I said, my Niles Red playlist, I shall start building that up after we finish up here. So I will go ahead and get, get that going on that. But but really, thank you so much, Brandon, and congratulations again on the book. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Well, my pleasure, Daniel. Thanks again. Thank you again to Brandon. And just to repeat it once more, Before Evil is available to order now at beforeevil.com. And that link will also be available in the show notes. I highly recommend checking it out. He's a fantastic writer. I've also included links to Brandon's other recommendations. So if you were intrigued by those, definitely give those a look too. If this was one of the first episodes you've heard, thank you for giving it a listen. I really appreciate it. And if you want to check out previous interviews, you can find the rest of them at our website, creativeconsumptionpodcast.com, or on all podcast apps like Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you've been listening to a few episodes and enjoyed what you heard, you can always drop us a note on the website or by sharing a review on those same podcast apps. I'd love to have your feedback and hear your thoughts. And until the next interview, which I hope will be coming very soon, stay safe and be well.